Brenda Fricker is sticking biscuits in the letterbox. Brenda Fricker is sticking wisdom in the letterbox. She's the four postmen of the apocalypse. Brenda Fricker is thinking thoughts. If you think the thoughts that Brenda Fricker thinks, your head would explode. Brenda Fricker is sticking biscuits in the letterbox. Brenda Fricker's head explodes. That was a poem um, submitted this week by Hollywood actress Brenda Fricker, which she wrote about herself. Thank you very much for that, Brenda. How are you, you glamorous men and women? Is that a new pair of slacks? Your frock is dashing. What's the crack? Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Um, I just want to start by saying thank you so much to everybody who sent me lovely supportive messages last week. Um, it, it truly warmed my cockles. Um, I got some lovely messages because, as you know, last week I postponed a gig because of the coronavirus and got effed in the A by Boris Johnson. Um, that's a bit vague, isn't it? That's a bit vague. If you didn't listen to last last week's podcast, it's like, what the fuck is he talking about? You cancelled the gig and were sodomised by Boris Johnson? I cancelled the gig, or postponed it, I mean, sorry, I postponed my London gig, and as a result of uh, Boris Johnson's foolish, um, foolish public health policy, I was left penalised. I postponed a gig in London um, because of the coronavirus and because of that it wasn't wasn't covered by insurance so I incurred some massive expenses as a result of Boris Johnson being a bozo. Bojo the bozo. The messy-headed Tory toddler gowlbag. And I just want to say thank you so much for everyone who sent me a little DM or a comment on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. I got a lot of lovely... Just fucking lovely supportive messages. And I just want to say it meant a lot. Even if I didn't get to reply to all of them. Um, It's just, it was that, it it gave me that lovely sense of community that I wanted from this podcast. um, To see how many people were just being sound. We're just being lovely and sound. So thank you so much. Uh, And thanks for the lovely feedback for last week's podcast, which was me chatting to Limmy um, we all needed a chuckle last week we all needed a chuckle and we needed something to take <coughs> take our minds off the world so God bless you all or dog bless you all whatever the fuck I've been having a productive week as I mentioned last week I'm <coughs> currently in the process of trying to begin streaming which is it's 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 like li- live camera stuff live camera stuff on the internet but I want to do it properly with the, a proper setup so my equipment arrived I've been messing around with it all week um, I did something today which I was very proud of so in order to do to shoot properly with a fucking with a camera and do it live 
I want the lighting to be nice, you know, I want the ambience and the lighting to be nice, but my face, or my bag rather, has to be lit properly. So when you're when you're filming and using a camera, you need to light your face. And I didn't really have a proper light that you'd use for illuminating one's face while filming. The best ones to use are the ones that like like makeup artists would use, you know, those ring lights. But I just didn't they were like 200 fucking quid. And also, currently, with the stress that's on the kind of delivery system. Like, every, everyone's in quarantine, so everyone is ordering shit. So I didn't trust buying a fucking light online and then possibly waiting two weeks for it to arrive. So, because I was restricted, I got to have some fun with creativity and I had a kind of a a shitty this shit fucking LED light that I bought about a year ago Maplin was closing down in Limerick so I stuck my head in on the last day and I saw this LED desk lamp that you plug in with USB and it was like a fiver so I bought it and I got that right and then I got a fucking milk uh, milk carton not a carton, but what's the one where it's a plastic bottle? It's not a bottle and it's not a Tetra Pack. I got a two litre Tetra Pack plastic milk receptacle. Cut the top of it off with a scissors, right? And the plastic of, of Tetra Pack milk, it's, it's kind of like greaseproof paper, you know? It's not fully see-through. It's, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a plasticised fog. Or a smog on the horizon. Do you know what I mean? I'm unnecessarily complicating it now. You know what a milk bottle looks like when there's no milk in it. Or a Tetra Pak plastic milk carton. So I got that, a two litre one. Cut the head off it. Stuck it on top of my fucking LED. And it works perfectly. As like a 200 euro makeup artist light diffuser. So I was very happy with that. I was very happy to... Have had a problem and then used lateral thinking to solve it. And was like, fuck it, look at these results. I've just beat the system, you cunts. Do you know what I mean? So, and as you know as well, but this... I kind of just do that. I, I like... I've been recording in my bedroom for fucking years. And when you're doing it that way, you have to just make things work. You have to uh, use whatever's around you. To replicate a professional environment. So sometimes I just do that out of habit. Because I don't know any different. Like I, I, my microphone. I've got a, a large sock over it. Instead of spending a hundred quid. On a fucking. A proper foam thing. A pop. A pop. Can't think of the name of it. I, I fucking talk into a sock. As you know. And now when I start live streaming. My plastic bag. Will be illuminated. By an LED, a five euro LED light underneath a fucking milk bottle. So I was chuffed with that. It's a lovely feeling. It's a great feeling to have a problem and use creativity and solve it and be like, fuck yes, there's the results. So I had a productive problem solving week and filling my filling my days with little tasks like that. Do you know what I mean? So, 
last week I asked you, I said, would you like a podcast which deals with the anxiety which all of us might might be feeling as a result of the coronavirus and coronavirus, coronavirus, the coronavirus and the measures that are brought in as a result and all of this, a lot of us are experiencing anxiety and I asked you, would you like me to do a fucking podcast where I speak, where I speak about it and how to cope with it and how to manage it? And it was a resounding yes. I got fucking tons of people saying, yes, yes, please do this. Um, a lot of people, their anxiety is flaring up because of the situation. So some people then were like, no, I just want a distraction. Shut the fuck up about the coronavirus. Don't talk about it. So I'm going to do a half-half. What I'm going to do is the first half of this podcast is going to have fucking nothing to do with the coronavirus. Could be a completely separate uh topic and then the second half of the podcast I will what what I'll do is I'm going to speak about how I'm managing my anxiety how I'm coping how I'm viewing the whole thing right because that's always with mental health stuff as you know when I speak about it I just think it's more responsible if I speak about my experience, if I speak about my experience and what I'm doing, um, and what's kind of unique to me, and then if if you if you relate to that, then that helps you. But I think that's the best thing to do, and I always do that anyway. I I'm not into telling people what to do. I don't know how ethical or responsible that is. But I'll speak about my experience, and I'm doing quite well, despite the objective challenges of my reality my lived experience is one of happiness because I'm applying my techniques and I'm doing okay so I'll talk about that so before I continue to what I want to speak about first um, I know a lot of you are going to be listening to more and more podcasts or looking at Netflix or whatever the fuck you know um, to pass your time while you're in self-isolation. So what I've done is... Because like, this... I, I'm on the fucking... I'm on the 200 and something podcasts. With this fucking podcast. So what I've done is on Spotify... I have made a playlist of... My favourite episodes of this podcast. Which I'm still kind of adding to... But it's called the Official Blind by Podcast Playlist. And you'll find it on Spotify. And give it a little follow. So what I have is... I've gone back through all 230 or whatever podcasts. And picked out the ones that... I enjoy the most. Um, If you're just starting listening to this podcast... Or if you want to recommend this podcast to a friend... And you don't know where they should start... Then... This playlist, the official Blind by Podcast playlist on Spotify, go to that and you can send that to a friend. Or you can go to it yourself and listen back to some podcasts for the past three years. All the, my music podcasts are in there, the history of disco. Most of the mental health ones are in there too, transaction analysis and cognitive behavioural therapy. 
So give that a follow on Spotify, the official Blind by Podcast playlist. Yort. And recommend it to a friend. I fixed my squeaky chair. Alas, I have not remedied um, all the general noises that the chair makes. That creaky fucking thing, it's like... Fuck is that? It's not as offensive as, as a squeak or a creak, though. That's unacceptable. So, I'm always interested in Irish people who make strange impacts on the world, you know? I don't know why. Um, I covered it a little bit a few podcasts back. I'd found this old book called Irish Footprints Across Europe. And... It just it was it. This dude wrote it, and he was trying to document some the impact that Irish people make around the world. I suppose it's because we're not we're not because we haven't colonized anyone. The impact that we make it's it's much more of a person by person impact rather than a collective impact, like. For fucking Spanish or for, or for the Brits, it's like, what impact did you have? Well, it's like, well, we took over entire countries and changed how they talk and their customs and eradicated their cultures. We don't, uh, we didn't do any of that. We just, certain people left Ireland and reached all the corners of the globe and made little quiet impacts that often get lost in the history books. So anytime I find one of these kind of situations that you could describe as queer or odd, I love to learn about them and talk about them. So one person I found out about recently, before I talk about it, let me set the scene. Um, the country formerly known as Burma, which we now know as Myanmar, but I'm going to refer to it as Burma because that's 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 what it would have been called during the events that I'm describing. So Burma is a country that kind of borders both India and China. And Burma was colonized by the British because the British colonized India. And they considered Burma to be a very important conduit between India and China. So the the British did their thing and they colonized the area. And I'd say the Brits called it Burma, right? But what I want to speak about is shoes. The significance of shoes in Burma slash Myanmar and the Brits... So, I'll set the scene. It's the early 18th century, and this is the height of expansionism in the British Empire. And what the Brits liked to do in what they referred to as the Orient is they were meeting civilizations that were quite developed and that had pre existing hierarchies and structures. So, the way that the Brits colonized it wasn't completely complete and utter immediate war were taken over your country it was a snaky diplomacy it was pretending that they were friends first 
and then eventually double crossing and taking over everything for themselves. So Burma was strategically very important for the British. The British had India, right? But Burma is between India and China. It's got India to the or China to the north. So for as a trade route, Burma was essential to the Brits. <clears throat> so what the Brits would do is they would send envoys to a country. So they'd send envoys to Burma. Envoys of incredibly posh British admirals and dukes and lords and what have you, you know. And they would first have to meet the king of Burma and they'd do so in that polite, gentlemanly way. But the thing is with the king of fucking Burma is Burma's a Buddhist country. So in order for these posh Brits to first meet the king of Burma, they not only had to take their shoes off, but they had to crawl along the ground on their bellies just to be in the king's presence. So imagine these, like Britain at this time is the wealthiest nation in the world, the most powerful colonial power in the world. Incredible arrogance. Unbelievable colonial arrogance. And you have all these posh pricks crawling along the ground on their bellies to have to speak to the king of Burma to try and open up some type of trade agreement or diplomatic relations or whatever with the king of Burma and they're on their fucking bellies talking to him knowing full well that as a kind of, as a very racist society they they look down on the Burmese people they look they see them as as backward savages so after a while the Brits are on their bellies talking to the king of Burma and the Brits say this is after a couple of visits now. The British envoys just go, we're not fucking having it. We're meeting you now. We've met you five or six times. We don't come from, in, in our country, you don't crawl along your belly barefoot in order to meet someone. That's quite demeaning within our culture. That's very demeaning. The most we'd do is take our hat off to somebody. Or if we meet our own monarch, we might go down on one knee and kiss their ring. So the Brits were like, no fucking way not having it, I don't give a shit what your culture is, we are not crawling along in our bellies barefoot anymore to meet you. And what they used as a defence is they said, when we go to Siam, which is what we now refer to as Thailand, when they met the king of Thailand, the king of Siam, they didn't have to take their shoes off, they could meet them on kind of British terms. So, it became a real problem between Britain and Burma, right? Because the King of Burma's going, I don't give a fuck where you're from. I'm the King of Burma, so when you meet me, you take your shoes off and you crawl along the ground. So it became a diplomatic kind of fight. It's like now the Brits and the uh, King of Burma not, no longer have a dialogue because the Brits are like, we're not going into that in, into his fucking court if we have to take our shoes off and crawl along the ground. And the King of Burma is saying, well, those English cunts aren't coming in unless they do it. So you now have a breakdown in communication, which the Brits then use as, a, as an excuse for, all right, well, you won't talk to us. Let's, uh, let's start a war. So this is 1820-something. Um... Burma's already a very wealthy country. 
because like I said, they're between India and China, so they're quite wealthy from trade. So they put up a good fight, a decent fight, but ultimately the British win this war in 1820-something, and that begins now British rule in Burma. So Burma now is ruled by the British. So the Brits got rid of the King of Burma, but the problem with this is... um. Like I said, Burma was a, was a very, very Buddhist country. And the relationship that the King of Burma had with all the Buddhist monks in the country was... It, it was very important. The, the King of, of, of Burma kind of financed and patronised the monks. And once the King of Burma was taken away by the Brits, it led to a crisis in Buddhism where... It's like, who's going to pay for the pagodas? Who's going to mine the monks? It's They separated the monarchy and religion. So you had all this, this Buddhism in the country and it has no... They cut the head off it, basically. So the people ended up gathering behind it and having this crisis of what does Buddhism mean in Burma now because we no longer have a monarch... To patronise it from the top down. So. The Brits also. Because. what One of the things that led to this war. Like I mentioned was. The Brits having to take off their shoes. And crawl along their bellies. Because this was one of the. Sticking points that, that led to. A breakdown in diplomacy. That led to war. The Brits kind of took it personally. So when they started their rule in Burma. They now created new cultural rules around shoe wearing. Okay? So, it was sensible for them when they come into a culture to show a degree of respect to the religions within the country they're colonising. So, in Burma, within Buddhism, if you, if you walk into a Buddhist temple in Burma in the 1800s, you have to take off your shoes. It's a Buddhist temple. You have to take off your shoes. But now that the Brits are ruling, the Brits set up new rules, which basically said, only if you are Burmese must you take off your shoes. But if you're a white European, if you're a British white European, you can walk into a Buddhist temple with your shoes on, but you'll take your hat off. Which is obviously incredibly hurtful to the people of Burma, who have reverence and respect for their Buddhist temples to see all these fucking British soldiers walking around in their shoes? Um, it's it's a, it's an idea. It's ideological. Why did the British do shit like that? The same way the the British did in Ireland. You you take away the language, take away the culture. If a British person can walk into a Burmese temple wearing their shoes, it sends a clear signal that we fucking rule. We rule and we're better than you and we don't have to take our shoes off and your religion isn't even real because we're Christians and that's the real religion. Your Buddhism, that's just bullshit. We don't, that's why we can wear shoes because there will be no retribution. We've got Christ on our side. So it's a hugely racist policy that the British have in Burma of we can wear shoes, we'll take our fucking hats off. We will walk into your temple and acknowledge that it means something to you by taking our hats off. But fuck ye, we're not taking our shoes off. Ye can take your shoes off. So, the wearing of shoes 
in Burma in the 18th century. It takes on a whole new meaning that's not now just religious. It's classist and it's racist. Okay? And it services British white supremacy. Basically. A strong, disrespectful reminder of who's in charge. Similar shit was happening in, in Ireland at the same time in 1826. Um, under British rule. You know, if you, if you wanted to speak the Irish language or play an Irish sport such as hurling, it would have been shut down pretty quickly and referred to as savage and illegal because it's, it's, a, uh, it's the ideological force of power. Po- power isn't just performed by, by soldiers brutally. It's, it's an entire ideological system that reminds people of, you know, through language and ritual and culture, who the fuck is in charge and what is considered savage and what is considered civilised. So let's go back to Burma and fast forward about 70 years to 1900. So at this point, you know, Burma's been under British rule for the bones of a century. Um, the wearing of shoes is now ingrained in society and culture as a racial hierarchy and caste. And in temples and pagodas, like, there's literal signs outside that say, take your shoes off if you're Burmese, but if you're British or European, you don't have to take your shoes off, okay? So, it became a, a, a signifier of your status in society. And as a result, it's passionate and heated and emotional. So here's the interesting Irish connection that I'm going to bring in to this story about the country of Burma and Burma under British rule and the relationship with shoes and bare feet and status and class and race. So there was a chap born in Ireland and as far as you know, his name was Lawrence Carroll. He would have been born in inner city urban slum in Dublin. We don't know where, but the inner city slums of Dublin in the 1850s would have been pretty tough going. So he was a working class Irishman who I believe first became a sailor and he fucked off out of Ireland. He became a hobo in America. So kind of lived... Hobo is kind of different to homeless in, in the context of, of the 18th century. It's It's a transient homeless person who moves from place to place taking jobs, usually via the rail network. So he became a hobo. But then what makes this Lawrence Carroll chap from Dublin so fucking interesting? He's the first ever Western person to be ordained as a Buddhist monk. The the first ever white person to become a fucking Buddhist monk is a lad called Lawrence Carroll from Dublin, born in 1850-something. And he took the name Damaloka. And whatever happens, he ends up in Burma as a Buddhist monk in a temple in 1901. So, becoming an actual Buddhist monk and being the first white person to do it, which is obviously unheard of because he's the first fucking white person to do it, to become a Buddhist monk, like, he's no longer dressing as a Westerner. He starts to, he has to wear the fucking robes of a Buddhist monk, which in 1901 is really fucking strange and isn't done and people don't know how to react to it 
because in Burma specifically, in a society where, where we said that, you know, Europeans dress a certain way and native Burmese people dress a different way, to have a white person barefoot as a Buddhist monk, it really it causes a weird situation within the structural hierarchy around shoes. Now, it's worth noting too that this Damaloka, Lawrence Carroll from Dublin, he was also, he was quite radical. He would have been very, very anti-colonial. He's an Irishman, so he's also aware, like he, he's not a fan of the British because he's seen what the British uh, colonialism is doing in Ireland. So he's radicalised, outspoken. He has did a lot of writing, a lot of anti-colonial writing. This person is a rebel as such, an outspoken rebel. He's also, you know, a Buddhist who is, a, you know, a Buddhist monk. It takes a, a, a vow of poverty, of chastity, you know, compassion, but is also passionately angry. Because he understands what is truly right and what is wrong, and you know he he, he was a, he, he, there's a quote that he was very outspoken about the Bible, the whiskey bottle, and the Gatling gun. So he viewed uh, missionary Christianity as wrong because missionary Christianity would have been used by the British. As a way to colonise and eradicate cultures, you bring in Christ, you remove the, the religion that's in the area that you're colonising, and then you use Christianity as a weapon of coercion. So, Damaloka from Dublin, he's not into fucking Christianity, he's not into Christian missionaries, he's not into alcohol, of course. He views the destructive forces of alcohol and the Gatling gun. The Gatling gun being... The British machine gun, which in 1901, again, the, the politics of the machine gun in 1901 is quite interesting. The British used to, used to have an actual policy of, like the machine gun, the Gatling gun, which was the, I think the, was the first ever gun, the Maxim gun. The, the machine gun was a British invention. I don't know if the first one was the Maxim gun or the Gatling gun, right? But anyway, guns were the thing. But all of a sudden, you now have this new technology called a machine gun, which is one weapon that can kill a thousand people, right? And it was so dangerous that the Brits had an actual policy of you must never use a Maxim gun or a Gatling gun machine gun on a white person. Like, the Brits took on the Zulus in Africa with the machine gun and would just mow down hundreds and hundreds of Zulu warriors with who'd have spears and bow and arrow and they just mow them down, kill them all with one fucking gun. But they'd never use the gun against another white person until World War One. And if you ask uh, the Brits, they'll say, well, the Germans did it first. We had no choice. So the Gatling gun in 1901, and this is why Damaloka is speaking out about it, it's not just a gun. It's this unique vicious weapon of British colonialism that is used against what they deem to be savages people who don't have access to humanity it's okay to use a Gatling gun on quote unquote savages because their humanity 
is not Christian in your opinion. So Damalok is speaking out about the Bible, the whiskey bottle and the Gatling gun. So as you can imagine, very anti-British, very anti-colonial, but a Buddhist, a Buddhist monk, the first fucking Westerner ever in Burma. So one day in 1901, what happens is Damaloka is in a pagoda, um, which I, I assume is a type of Buddhist temple, but he's in a pagoda. And what happens is a policeman walks into the pagoda in their shoes. Now the policeman's allowed to do this because the signs say that only Burmese people must take off their shoes. But Damaloka just says, fuck this, take your shoes off to the policeman. The policeman goes, I believe the policeman was Indian, but because they were an actual officer for the British, they don't have to take their shoes off. But Damaloka's like, fuck that, it's a Buddhist temple, take your fucking shoes off. And it caused a unique problem because essentially what you have there is is Damaloka used his privilege as a white European to call out an injustice. Like he's a white European who's barefoot telling a police officer who's part of the British Crown Forces to take their fucking shoes off in the pagoda. So a crowd kind of gathered around and were like, is this fucking Buddhist monk actually telling the policeman to take his shoes off? Because they've known 70 years of that's not what you do. And also the people are going, holy fuck, that Buddhist monk is white. What the fuck is going on here? So because it was such strange and unique situation... It led to a thing called the shoe controversy, I think it was called, or the shoe question. There was a newspaper article written about it. And it inspired more Buddhist monks in Burma to start challenging Brits and policemen and people of power to now take their fucking shoes off when they went into temples. And remember, you have to bring this back to when the British first colonised Burma and they refused to take their shoes off for the Buddhist king so this business of shoes it's not just about shoes it's both religious and nationalistic it's about independence it's about identity as a people it's about removing getting the Brits out basically so it's not just shoes anymore the symbol of shoes means so much more than just religion so it became a real passionate and important thing for the people of Burma to now really challenge this business of if you step into a pagoda or a Buddhist temple everyone takes their fucking shoes off doesn't matter who you are you must take your shoes off and the Brits tried to fight back a bit but they eventually realised we can't win this one so what happened is and as well the like the monks were taking down the signs and putting up new ones so instead of the sign now saying uh, only Burmese people must take their shoes off. They were putting up news signs that just saying, take your fucking shoes off. Whoever it is, take your shoes off. So the Brits folded on it. And were like, this isn't... This is a... This is a fight that if we fight this too brutally, it will internationally look very, very bad. So the Brits said, grand, we'll all take our shoes off. And it then... That small victory around shoes... 
led the Burmese people. It led to a Burmese nationalist movement for independence where they kind of went, well, fuck it, man. If, if, If we won the Battle of the Shoes, then what more can we get? And it's seen as a real starting point for eventual Burmese independence, which was won. And that's why the place is now Myanmar. Um, now I'm cautious around telling that story because I don't want to have like this this white saviour narrative where this white fucking lad from Dublin is responsible for Burmese independence. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that a lad from Dublin, an Irishman who grew up in 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 a a country controlled by British rule under the boot of Britain, went to a different country, saw the people as his contemporaries, didn't identify with the colonial rulers, because they're the same colonial rulers that are fucking over Irish people, instead identified with the struggle of the people there, adopted their customs and traditions, but used his privilege as a white European to stand up in maybe a way that had he not have been a white European, if it had been a Burmese person who would have attempted that, would that person have simply been met with immediate execution and death? He used his privilege to stand up in that moment. So it's I'm not trying to say that he's like this white fucking saviour, like dances with wolves, who led the native people. He didn't. He stood up and used his privilege to go, this is fucking wrong. And I don't know. I think that's a cool story. Um, what I also find interesting too is is it's been suggested that a huge part of his inspiration was to understand that you can use religion, native religion, effectively as an anti-colonial tool, because like in Ireland with Catholic emancipation. People identify with a religion if they're told that that religion is lesser by a colonial power. But also, religion is a very sensitive thing. Even in 1900, if the people unite, like the people in Ireland unite under under Catholicism for Catholic emancipation, when they're uniting under a, a religion, right, the religion is, we'll say in Ireland, Catholicism is bigger than fucking Ireland. So, if the Brits come down too hard on it, like they did with the penal laws, it just looks bad. It looks bad to all the other Catholic countries, and then other Catholic countries might want to come in and help. So similarly, with Burma, with the business with the shoes, and with people uniting under Buddhism, if the Brits crack down too hard on an issue of religion, you don't just piss off the Burmese, you piss off every other fucking country which has respect for Buddhism. And they they say that Damaloka understood this. And this was a kind of a cornerstone in, in his revolutionary thinking. So it's just an interesting story, I thought I'd tell you, to entertain and take your mind off the world. There you go. So now we will move... Where are we, is that? 40 minutes. Now, uh, we're going to have the ocarina pause, ladies and gentlemen. I've got a nice little one here. Mm. 
Hold on. The ocarina pause, obviously, it's, it's, there's going to be an advert for something that's put in here by ACAST. So the ocarina pause is to kind of, to warn you, so you don't get surprised by an ad. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's a beautiful ocarina, man. I think this is my new favourite one. It's a blue ceramic ocarina with a gorgeous... A leather embroidered strap. I don't know. I'd say someone gave it to me at a gig. I have a lot of ocarinas now. And I have an Aztec death whistle. Which... I think we could do without the Aztec death whistle. For a couple of months. <clears throat> but this beautiful ocarina. Oh, bye. Um, so there you go. Some adverts. Also, um, if you listened last week, you know I gave a, a, a particularly impassioned plea for ye lads to support me on Patreon. And I'm going to do it again this week because, as you know, we're in the middle of this coronavirus bullshit. Um, what's this going to sound like in a fucking year? Do you know what I mean? In a year. Talking about the pandemic. When someone listens back to the podcast. Do you know what it's going to be like? This is why This is why I fucking hate. Why I'm cautious about even mentioning the coronavirus. Do you know like. When it's June. And. You see something to do with Christmas. And you're just like. Get it away from me. No. That's what this would be like. So I'm trying, I, I, but I can't not mention the fucking coronavirus. So if you're listening from 2021, apologies for, for emotionally triggering you. <clears throat> so anyway, what will I be doing in 2021? ISIS will start 
gluing prosthetic shins to dogs. We'd all be freaked out by comically tall corgis. But, uh, the fuck was I talking about? Patreon. Yeah, look, here's the crack. Coronavirus. Um, I fucking... So, look, mass gatherings are banned for a long time, so... All my live podcasts have had to have been postponed until a few months anyway. I won't be doing live podcasts for a few months, lads, and that's uh, absolutely devastating to my income. Also, because I postponed a gig in London, it wasn't insured, so I'm left with a gigantic debt. So I'm in a tough old situation financially at the moment. And... Yeah, it's tough going. So last week I put out a big plea for you to really support my fucking Patreon if you don't do it and I'm doing the same this week um, so yeah so look if you listen to the podcast a lot and you're enjoying it just to understand that uh, it takes a long time to make I put it out for free um, and if if you can afford to pay me for it please do and the way to do this is go to patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast and you become a patron of the podcast and, you know, for the, give me the price of a cup of coffee or a pint once a month. That's all it is, just once a month. And you're you're paying for me to put in a lot of work and, and provide content. And now that all my live income is gone, this, I, I, this is what I need to pay my fucking bills and to pay that debt and to stay out of trouble. So... If you're kind of if you were sitting on the fence and you're going oh one day I'll do Blind Boys Patreon, if you're a, if you can afford it if you can afford that pint, uh, please do please do you'd really be helping me at a time of need. If you can't afford it, that's fucking grand. That rule still applies, lads. If you can't fucking afford it, there's no pressure. Please don't be feeling guilty. All right, this is for the people who reckon they can. Like I got a lovely mail last week from someone who was like, they heard my plea last week. And they're like, I I still have my job. Coronavirus just means that I'm working from home. So what this person did is they gave me a portion of the money that they would have been paying on parking their car. Which I thought was a lovely fucking gesture and it was really nice and I really appreciated it. So that's the, now now is the time I really, really need patrons for the podcast to keep it going. And to fucking for me to be able to pay my bills and live. Um, so p- please do consider it. And yeah, if you can't, proselytize the podcast. Just either review, give it a review on iTunes. Uh, fucking recommend it to friends. That's the best one. The uh, Yeah, the other shitty thing about this quarantine that we're all in is I rely massively on word of mouth for this podcast, especially people at work in offices. You know, people at work going, I listen to this podcast on the way to work. So it spreads around offices. That's kind of gone now. So people are going to be listening to more podcasts because we're all trying to fill our time. Because we're in self-isolation. So recommend the podcast to a friend and go to that playlist, the official Blind by Podcast playlist on Spotify. And send that one to a friend so they then have... What I've picked to be the best episodes for them to listen to. Um, So that's about it really. That's about it lads. Thank you very much for listening to that. So. 
the first half of the podcast was about the Irish Buddhist monk. And as I promised you, I'm going to speak about the coronavirus, anxiety around it, mental health, how to manage, how I'm managing my mental health and anxiety around the coronavirus. If you don't want to fucking hear that, because you're sick of hearing about the coronavirus, because it's all anyone's talking about, I'll talk to you next week. Alright, that's grand. But for anyone who wants to continue listening, you can continue listening. I'm not going to say anything frightening or scary or catastrophic, alright? That's not my game. I'm here to speak about management and coping and calmness and meaning, alright? So, if you are listening to it, don't be worrying about, is Blind Boy going to say some fucking shit that's going to make me upset for the rest of the day? No, I am not. Absolutely not. So, right, how do I deal with, I'm someone who, I don't live with anxiety, but I'm somebody who once did with extreme uh panic attacks and anxiety so I I have the type of personality and the type of thought process that can lean me towards panic and anxiety so usually what I say around panic and anxiety if if we take the the cognitive behavioural therapy approach um, CBT would say that anxiety depression these things are caused not by what is happening, but your reaction to what is happening. Your views and beliefs that you have about what is happening, okay? And for most of the time, that works. When we experience anxiety or discomfort, it's because of our own thought process. It's stuff that's not happening. It they're, they're fantasies that we're inventing ourselves, which is convenient because then you can work on how you're thinking about things, how you're thinking about a situation, and then you can alleviate and remove the anxiety by changing your thinking from rigid and extreme thoughts to thoughts that are more flexible. But what do you do now that we have, you know, we're all in self-isolation because there's a fucking global pandemic, right? None of us has have lived through this. We haven't had this before. This is a new one for all of us. So now, how how do you... If anxiety and depression and anger are caused by... Not, why, not by what's happening, but how you view what's happening. How do you now manage it, manage it when what's happening is actually a scary thing? And what what I do there is there's many different schools of psychology. Psychology is 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 I'm not a religious person, but I I use psychology and psychotherapy the way that uh, a religious person would turn to the Bible. We'll say now I don't mean supernatural. It's just when I'm searching for a way to understand my emotions and my feelings, I turn to psychology. So, for something like the coronavirus, 
CBT is helpful to a point. But I have to go further. I have to go to things like existential psychology and Buddhism in, in a way as well. Because a, a lot of existential psychology and, and humanistic psychology, it's just kind of Buddhism. But in a more clinical, a more clinical version of Buddhism that isn't, it's not religion. So, firstly, I acknowledge and I acknowledge and accept what's happening. So, as I say many times before, life contains suffering. In order to exist as a human being and, and participate in what we call life, you're going to suffer. Suffering is part of it. Now, joy and happiness and laughter, they're also part of life. In fact, they're most of life. But suffering is also a part of life. That you, It's a given. It is a given of existence. So right now, with the coronavirus, the world is now collectively suffering. To not be able to leave your house because there's a virus that's suffering you're being denied going outside and meeting people you're worried about the safety of people you love you're worried about your own safety so right now I'm suffering you're suffering suffering is a given of human existence right the situation right now the objective reality is that it's painful it's not it's 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 not nice it's it's not pleasant for there to be a virus that we don't have immunity to that's not pleasant it is going to go away all right it's not uh it's not forever it's going to go away but right now the the objective reality is that it's unpleasant and we are suffering. But does that now mean that every moment of my existence has to be extreme suffering? Panic and anxiety are examples of extreme suffering. Okay? They tend panic and if you're in a if if because of this coronavirus business and the news you're in a state of panic and anxiety which means that you're continually fearful on edge worried all right that for me constitutes unnecessary suffering okay suffering is a part of human existence but there is also avoidable suffering so my job myself for my mental health at this moment and what's what I'm doing to, to cope I don't want any unnecessary avoidable suffering okay and panic and anxiety are avoidable they're suffering that I can avoid so what I do I, I tend to I'm not going to say that like when this fucking coronavirus shit, when when it arrived in Ireland and it was all over the news, that I didn't have moments of panic and anxiety. Of course I did. They're 
that's a natural response to a negative situation. I absolutely did have slight moments of, oh fuck, we're fucked, oh this is terrible, oh no, what will I do? Um, but because, because I, I've, I've overcome panic attacks and anxiety and, and deal with it all the time, my default, I don't, as a default, when, when anxiety and panic comes up in me, I, I can actually recognise it for what it is. I can understand, hold on a second, I'm not concerned about what's happening, I'm not worried about what's happening, I'm panicking. I'm experiencing anxiety. So I can spot these things and I go, that's not useful. It's okay to feel it right now, but I can't run with it. I can't live with this and allow this to define my day. And often I find panic and anxiety present themselves, right, when we refuse to truly acknowledge and accept the objective reality of what's happening. When we don't um, truly acknowledge that suffering is occurring and we kind of have suffering in the corner but you don't want to stare at it and you're looking away and there's this internal voice inside you that wants to be like, this is a dream, it's not happening. This is a dream, how can this be happening? That's, That's when panic takes hold. That's when panic and anxiety takes hold. So what I did is I said, I accepted right now in my life is a time of suffering. And and when I say suffering, again, I'm taking it from psychology and Buddhism. Suffering just means bad shit is happening. I mean, I'm not in physical pain, but I'm suffering. You're suffering. My... Freedom is restricted. My livelihood's been taken away, a, a huge portion of it. I'm left with the uncertainty for the future. No one fucking likes that. I'm worried for the safety of people I love who are vulnerable to the virus. I now have a brand new handful of bad problems that I didn't have last week. And these things are unavoidable. Right, so acknowledging the first step for me was acknowledging this fucking exists. This is objective reality right now <clears throat> isn't pleasant. Okay, panic and anxiety I find, especially existential anxiety, it tends to become overpowering when you're not truly accepting and acknowledging what's actually happening. When this coronavirus uh, fucking, when it comes on the news and you see everything around you and it doesn't feel real and you feel like you're in a film or you're in in a dream and there's this part of you, this like an itchy emotion that wants to wake up from a dream or that wants to say this isn't happening, this isn't happening or this part of you that wants to crawl into a fucking ball. Do you know, that's when anxiety and panic takes over and you can lose control of your emotional discipline, right? Um, 
that's when anxiety and panic kicks in. And and the way to not allow that to happen is you truly accept and understand that I am alive and I exist. And in order to be a human being, I have to accept that suffering is an inevitable and unavoidable part of being alive. And right now, the world is suffering. That's a given. That's what's happening. Like, it's it's an interesting thing. A lot of people right now are, are turning to nostalgia. Like, people in their early 20s at the moment. There's this, there's this video game called An- Animal Crossing New Horizons, which everyone in their fucking early 20s is playing. And it's interesting, the desire towards it, because people who are, who are, we'll say, 25 and under, Animal Crossing New Horizons is a, it's it's part of a, a series of games called Animal Crossing. The first one was like in the early 2000s. So people in their early 20s are gravitating towards this video game because it reminds them of a video game that was around when they were under the age of six. And all right, it's a video game and it's fun. But what nostalgia always tells us is when you seek comfort in nostalgia, what you're looking to do is return to the safe part of your childhood. What makes nostalgia tempting is you want to go back to being three and four where there is no pain in the universe because your ma and da controls what pain is. When you're a child and bad shit is happening, you can go to mammy and daddy and you can say, I'm suffering and mammy and daddy come along and say well I'm going to fucking stop the suffering but when you're an adult there's no one to stop the suffering when you're an adult suffering is an inevitable part of being alive so when we find ourselves wanting to play fucking Animal Crossing yeah it's a fun game but it's 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 that attempt to alleviate suffering it's, it's you want to go back to the womb you want to go back to being a toddler when someone bigger than you could make everything okay I'm not saying there's anything wrong with playing fucking Animal Crossing. I'm saying have awareness around your gravitation towards nostalgia because the force behind it is it's a way to moderate and control emotions. People in their fucking 30s might all of a sudden flick on Netflix and decide that Harry Potter is a good idea. Something about watching Harry Potter gives you that warm fuzzy feeling. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Do it. But have an awareness around is what you're searching for to return to a place where you can crawl into a ball and have an adult say to you everything's going to be okay. Where Where I'm going is I have to sit with the reality that I don't really know what's going to happen. I know that right now I can manage what's within my control. And I'm not looking for a mother or father figure to tell me everything's going to be okay. I have to be an adult and go, I am an adult and I am suffering because life contains inevitable suffering. And when you do that, right, I'm not being negative. When you do that, when you accept and acknowledge that suffer, that reality currently is suffering, 
then you move to a grounded place where you can actually look around you and go certain things right now are outside of my control the coronavirus existing is outside of my control it's outside of your control um having to socially isolate is outside of my control having to stay away from people who i love and me having to stay away from them to protect them is outside of my control right and i accept that these things are outside of my control so now i move my attention towards what what is inside my what what's it is in my control what's certainly in my control is no matter what happens in my life i have absolute control over my attitude towards it no one can take that away when you find yourself in in a situation of panic and a situation of anxiety then it's like you've given away that control but it's like no 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 i have complete control over how i react to this to situations that are outside of my control like if we look at the the panic buying that people are doing going into the supermarket and all the food is fucking gone like that there is is a classic it's like a sickness of our society like there's no evidence whatsoever that we have to worry about our food supply none like in a country like Ireland the food's going fucking nowhere there's going to be plenty of food and no shop is going to run out of food no shop is going to run out of toilet paper yet people still are now i understand look i'm i'm going to the supermarket once every two weeks i'm going in once every two weeks to get two weeks worth of shopping simple as that because i'm avoiding the supermarket because i'm socially isolating so i get it some people are going in and they're buying two weeks of food and that's fair enough that's what i'm doing but i'm not taking the piss i'm not being greedy and a minority of people are going into the supermarket and buying a ton of shit they don't need and what that tells me as a symptom of our society and what i find interesting is we're a society that's been raised with the religion of consumerism and consumerism is and i've said it before when your desires far outstrip your needs okay and we the 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 kind of the mouthpiece of consumerism is advertising advertising isn't about selling you things it's about selling you a better version of yourself okay so the people who are panic buying they're not purchasing things because they think they need them what they're actually doing is they have been we as a society have been conditioned to receive endorphins and and feelings of of pleasure and feelings of being a better person through the simple act of purchasing and these people are trying to control and regulate and manage their emotions by engaging in acts of purchasing goods which is a, a uniquely capitalistic way of managing internal emotions and why am i saying it because again it's it's another opportunity to if you find yourself going to the shop and arriving home with like what the fuck why do i have an entire tray of yogurts 
that are going to go off to ask yourself is this actually about having enough food to survive or are you trying to moderate and control something that's beyond your control what, what are you not facing what are you not staring down that when you try and turn away, turn away it expresses itself as panic buying so having awareness around I suppose irrational expressions of anxiety and again remind yourself life is suffering right now we're suffering and to acknowledge and accept it and now manage and look at what's inside your control so a big thing I've been doing is searching for personal meaning right within the situation I found myself in so I can't leave my gaff that's grand I'm in my gaff all day now so I'm going right what what have I been procrastinating what have I been putting off so now I'm giving myself <clears throat> a load of little tasks to do to give myself personal meaning so for me it's setting up this streaming thing um I'm really enjoying, like I said, I, I go to the supermarket once every two weeks. But for me, it's a huge opportunity now to... I'm changing how I'm cooking. I'm rationing my food. I'm really thinking about meal planning. I'm buying, thinking about nutrition. I'm trying to arrive home from the supermarket in a really responsible way where all my foods are like staple foods canned goods that won't go off rice pasta things like that not pre-cooked stuff and I'm getting really disciplined with my cooking and I turn it into something that's actually genuinely enjoyable it's genuinely enjoyable to like I know if I have carrots celery and onions these are three ingredients that you can keep for two weeks in the fridge and these three ingredients are the base of five or six different stews. So a, a little choice and planning like that, it's fun, it's enjoyable. So I'm getting great personal meaning from doing something like that. I'm, I'm taking great personal meaning in self-isolating and doing it not for me, even though, look... I don't want to fucking catch the coronavirus. Um, I've got asthma. I really don't want to catch the coronavirus. So I'm doing everything in my power not to get it. But my my driving force is I'm taking great personal meaning and enjoyment in being really good at not giving the coronavirus to someone else. So... If I self-isolate and don't interact with other people, now I have the privilege to do that because I don't have to go to one. Some people still have to work and I appreciate that. I can do my work from home so I can really, really self-isolate, not meet other people. And I can know when I go to bed and I, uh, when I get up in the morning and I go to bed, I can truly say to myself, today definitely didn't get near the coronavirus and I definitely won't give it to another person 
So, so that there, when I wake up in, my, in the morning, is, is my number one big job. My And I take it on a day-by-day basis. My job tomorrow morning when I wake up is to not come in contact with the coronavirus and to not give it to another person. Okay? That's my job. And I do that by self-isolating. And I'm choosing to care deeply about that task, about that big task, right? Because it's an act of compassion. I'm doing it for love for other people. I, I'm i going to work real hard to make sure that I don't catch it and give it to another person, especially a vulnerable person. And every day that I go to bed and know that I definitely didn't come in contact with it, I go to bed with a sense of meaning and a sense of accomplishment and a sense of purpose then I set myself other goals in the morning based around my self-isolation like I said the business of me and food my, my, the other job I have is to, is to feed myself right but I'm feeding myself off rations essentially I'm going to the shop once every two weeks so now I have to be incredibly creative about how I feed myself. I have all these basic ingredients. So every morning it's like a new task and goal. Going, How can I give myself nutritious, delicious food today. Based on these staple ingredients that I have. So that's now a journey that I can get meaning from. You know. Then I'm going okay. I'm not going to give coronavirus to someone else. And I've fed myself fantastically. In, in a challenging situation which demanded creativity and thinking then the other goal is wh- what tasks have I been procrastinating that I now have the opportunity to do because I'm stuck at home so for me it's trying to set up this streaming thing and then a lot of other jobs that I've been putting off that I can fucking boring shit that I can do and I give my full mindful attention to it and I go I'm going to do this to the best of my ability and do the best version of it that I can so I'm finding tasks setting goals and giving myself challenges and stories and narratives which give that then gives my day a sense of meaning and when you have meaning and purpose in your day no matter how no 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 matter uh, it doesn't matter that you're living in, in an objective reality of suffering when your day has meaning you don't experience unnecessary suffering in the form of panic in the form of catastrophizing like that's a a lot of panic comes from catastrophizing worrying about what might happen okay worrying about what if i get coronavirus what if someone i love gets it you know what if after it's all over uh, i don't have a fucking job these are real things to worry about but if, if it's outside of your fucking control, if it's something you can't control right now, you, you have to take responsibility to not allow it to define your day. You have a responsibility there to go, what the fuck am I giving my energy in self-isolation to these things that are outside of my control and haven't happened yet and may not happen? The only thing I prepare for is I give myself. I, I buy enough food to last me two weeks. That's what I prepare for, and I'm not interested in preparing for the next two weeks until two weeks' time, 
because I'm focusing on what what's in my control and what's not in my control. If it's not in my control, I'm not gonna I'm gonna stop myself if I'm getting too emotional around it and I search for meaning in my day. The other thing I do around the coronavirus is you know um be mindful how much social media you're consuming you know if you're going on social media all the time and it's you're seeing things that are making you anxious or you're seeing the media having clickbait headlines again take responsibility around your behavior there and don't go on social media that's what i'm doing now again going on social media is my job um being on twitter a lot is my job but when i see people who are there's some people on social media who just their way of managing their anxiety is to be unnecessarily negative or to pass their anxiety onto other people. That that is something that I see. You see people online being very catastrophic in their wording and their thinking and really liking to focus on things being quite bad. I just mute these people. I don't want them in my timeline because it's not useful what's useful is the information that's coming from experts similarly if if you are someone who goes onto social media and when you're on social media what you want to do is express your sense of panic and anxiety if you want to type we're all fucked this is awful this is terrible really think twice about doing that because while I understand that in the moment it it can release some anxiety energy as you do it you're just making things you're, you're, you're not helping other people someone else with anxiety is going to see your status your status which is about something that doesn't exist it's about a projection of the future that you've coloured heavily with your own sense of panic but when someone sees that on the timeline alongside news headlines we don't separate the two and we internalise your status about how fucked we are as news and then you've just panicked another person so let's all take responsibility that we're not don't forward the fucking whatsapp message that's probably fake don't go onto facebook or twitter to scream into the void about how terrible you think everything is you're not acting in the benefit of your community right there when you do that you have to just go hold on a second is this worth typing or if it's really bothering you, you got to ring up that person in your life who you care about and who you love and who will listen to you and understand that they're going through the same shit and maybe have a conversation about your panic. But don't broadcast it on social media. It won't help you, it won't help other people. But I am I'm choosing to focus on... There is a silver lining to the coronavirus thing. And that's what I'm choosing to focus on, right? There is a silver lining. Now, I want to be very careful in how I say this because I don't want to come across as a fucking an eco-fascist or like fucking Trevelyan in the Irish famine. Like when the Irish famine was going on and loads of people were fucking dying, Trevelyan said he believed that the famine was a, like a gift from God and that it would be beneficial in reducing the population. And some people are doing that type of take, and like, no, fuck that. I'm still, I'm, I'm very sad about what's happening. And I don't, I'm not saying, 
when I say that there are positives, not positives, when I say there's a silver lining to this coronavirus thing, aside from any fucking pandemic of a flu, right, and that's what this is, it's the pandemic of a flu, which experts are telling us 80% 80 of people are going to get a mild case of it and 20% will find themselves in in intensive care and 5% will die. Um, When I look at the, the silver lining of a situation which is outside of my control, like global warming is a, is a huge issue. You know I talk about climate change a lot. The environment fucking loves coronavirus, lads. All right? My hope for coronavirus is that it's going to be this decade's 9-11. In that... When 9-11 happened, it changed fundamentally how we live our lives, how we move, how we operate. Okay? Um, whether it changed for the better... I don't know, but it made strong changes to how we travel in particular. It it defined the last decade. 9-11 and security and everything that came about as a result of it. And I'm hoping that coronavirus is going to be this generation's 9-11 in terms of a huge incident of global impact that now changes how we behave. But I think... We need a kick up the fucking arse regarding climate action. And coronavirus could be that kick up the fucking arse. The entire world is shutting down now for three or four months. The We're not producing as much carbon as we would be producing. The environment is going to benefit from that period whereby we all fucking relax from going out in our cars and industry slows down. The environment is going to love that, okay? Also, what it's doing is that there's certain ways of operating, specifically in business, and these things exist simply because that's how things are done and they haven't been questioned. A lot of people in offices and in industries all around the world are realising now how many jobs actually needed to... How, how many meetings could have been an email? How many jobs required a person to come into an office instead of staying at home? Do you know what I mean? So, the things that we need to do in order to, in order to fucking truly stop climate change, we need this massive change in how we live our lives right we need to move around less we need to use less airplanes we need to not be in cars as much and traveling back and forth to work we need to do more stuff remotely these are all positive things for the environment and the coronavirus crisis could be one of those things that makes people go fuck it change isn't so hard all along do you know so I think there's huge benefits in that respect and I'm I'm choosing to focus on that. Some people say, how can you have hope in a time like this? Of course you can have fucking hope. This is going to pass. Coronavirus is going to fucking pass. It's not pleasant. It's not, it's, it's currently we're suffering. But for most of us lads, ultimately it's like you're being asked to sit on your arse and watch a lot of fucking, watch a lot of TV 
sit on your arse, watch TV and listen to podcasts and to and by doing that you're as important the job that you're doing is as important as a nurse or a doctor if you sit on your arse and don't contact other people you are preventing the spread of infection and then now you're making the job of the doctor and the nurse and frontline workers easier frontline workers Right, who are in a completely different situation to me. Frontline workers who are out there risking their lives, working their fucking arses off. What we all need to do is to make sure that we don't give them more patience. This whole flattening the curve business, we chill the fuck out, we sit back, we don't contact other people, and you keep the numbers down low so that the healthcare system can actually manage them. Another positive, I said, I I don't mean, I mean, another silver lining of this crisis is governments have been forced, unfortunately because it's an emergency, but governments have been forced to look towards some socialistic principles. In Ireland this week, the government are temporarily introducing more or less universal basic income. People are going to receive... 350 quid a week the employer is going to receive money to keep that person on in their job our health system has been effectively nationalised private hospitals have been absorbed into the public hospitals anyone who uh, gets coronavirus in Ireland is not going to receive a medical bill now more than ever the coronavirus has shown the world that we're all in this together and that you can't have like the reason coronavirus is hitting us so hard isn't necessarily because of the virus it's because of the years and years of inequality that have happened because of neoliberalism our health system is strained because of underfunding and underfunding because the powers that be want to privatise it do you know we're kind of realising that if we'd have lived in a more compassionate society where healthcare, housing, education, unions, pensions where all the crutches of society are funded by the taxpayer so that when someone falls into trouble socialism is a system that acknowledges that suffering is a given of human existence Okay, and, and when I say socialism, all right, don't be listening to fucking Jordan Peterson telling you that it's Soviet Russia. What I mean is using tax money, right, our taxes, so that everyone has a sense of equality. So that if you get sick, it's not coming out of your own pocket. So that if your children want to go to college, it doesn't matter that you're not rich. That they can get the same education as everybody else. It just means equality for healthcare, education and housing. All right, that's what social social democracy is. Now more than ever, the coronavirus is showing the world that this is the way forward because governments are now actually going. Oh fuck! The only way we are actually going to be able to cope with this thing is is if, if, as emergency measures, we introduce the tenets of social democracy. We introduce universal healthcare 
uh, a universal fucking basic income. Uh, they've told the banks to stop asking for mortgages for three months. There's been a rent freeze. All the things that people have wanted for that the government say, oh, we can't do that, you could never afford it. All of a sudden, they're able to do it. So it's... The coronavirus has called the bluff on governments who, when they've they've been asked to do the compassionate thing, have said compassion is impossible. We must we must follow the market rules and be neoliberal. Their bluff has been called been called by this. So that for me is a positive going forward. You know. Um, sure, look, that's all I can really say on it. Um, my thoughts around it. Look, I'm living in the same world as you are, and I'm trying my best. So my thoughts around it might be a bit scattered. And in a few weeks, I'll have a better, a more streamlined view of it. But what I can say is, yeah, last week I, I panicked a bit and I had anxiety. Of course I did. All right. It was a frightening and new situation and... I ended up with a giant debt and I don't know where my income is coming from. Worried about people I love. Several horrible things happened to me last week. And several horrible things happened to you last week, okay? And this is the reality that we must face. But I won't have, because I care about myself. I will utterly accept responsibility and take control for what I can control and what I can control is no matter what happens to me in life I have full and utter control over my attitude towards whatever the fuck it is that's happening alright and acknowledging and understanding that is truth that gives me the power and the self confidence to get up in the morning and now set myself some tasks and goals that I will mindfully approach with passion and gusto and meaning. And then I'll go to bed having achieved some goals and feeling good about myself. And now you don't have to have the goals either, right? These are my goals. This is what I want to do. And it's unique to my personality. I want to set myself the challenge of, of cooking myself nutritious meals on a skeleton fucking on, on, on rice and, and all this shit that's me I like cooking I get meaning from it you don't have to do that you can have fucking pizzas in the oven if that's what you fucking like alright similarly like I'm a creative person so a huge amount of my meaning is going to come from art maybe you're maybe that doesn't do it for you you have to find your own thing what if your thing is watching fucking Netflix if that gives you a sense of meaning then you fucking do it just make sure you do it passionately whatever it is you're doing do it passionately if it's getting more rest do it passionately and don't allow the time to be overcome with anxiety and panic and giving unnecessary energy and and unnecessary suffering to things that aren't happening or haven't happened yet are outside of your control that's basically it and my reality and my objective reality is unpleasant but my subjective lived experience 
is pleasant for the most for the most part of it pleasant i'm having good days despite everything that's happening i am having good days and i'm not having days that are full of depression or anxiety so and a good book to read and it's a bit bleak but a good book to read for this and where i'm taking a lot of this from is a psychologist called victor frankl and I, I did a podcast before on Viktor Frankl. I can't fucking remember the name of it, but I'll find it and I'll put it into that playlist. Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Um, you'd be able to get it as a PDF. Viktor Frankl was, was uh, put into a concentration camp. And he basically... The book is about how he managed to survive a concentration camp by finding a sense of personal meaning even though his reality was a million times more horrific than what you or I are dealing with with a fucking pandemic this is a, a Jewish man who was in a death camp okay and his book is about how he founded a school of psychology based on his experience about how finding personal meaning got him through it on a day to day the only expectation of you or me is to cope if that's your one goal, right? If you don't want to have a bunch of smaller goals and you want to wake up in the morning, you say to yourself, what's my goal today? My goal today is to cope. Because that's all, that's all that can be expected of you. Today I am going to cope. And just know, this shit's going to be, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be gone. The coronavirus is going to be gone. And in a year's time we'll be laughing about it. You know, I don't mean that in a cynical way. I mean that in a way that laughter is an essential and important part of the human condition too. And it's how we manage grief and it's how... It, it, it's one way that we can manage grief and one way that we can understand our emotions. And laughter is a way that we can access uh, opinions and thoughts and feelings about things that other mechanisms won't allow us to do. But... You know, China's returning to fucking normal life at the moment. China have had three, three months of lockdown. They've done it properly. And life's returning to normal. So, this isn't forever. It's for a couple of months. And it's going to be frightening. And it's going to be unpleasant. And someone you might know, someone you know might die. You might catch coronavirus. These are all things that might happen. But if they're not happening right now, then it's none of your business. You, you focus on coping. And acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the suffering, and say, this is the price you pay for love. This is the price you pay for laughter. This is the price you pay for a beautiful fucking sunset. This is the price you pay for the sound of birds. Beauty exists, and so does fucking darkness, and it's it's part of the tapestry of human existence, and I can't tell you why that is. We just know, that's the one thing we fucking know. Alright, that, look, that was a bit of a fucking ramble. It was a bit of a ramble. I hope you took something from it. The reason it was a ramble is that I don't have coherent fucking idea. I don't have really have strong coherent ideas about it. I'm playing this by ear the same as ye. And also it was a ramble because when I speak like that, it's not only for the benefit of ye. It's, it's a personal diary for me. It helps me process my feelings and emotions too. But we'll be grand. We'll be fucking grand, lads. Alright? We'll be grand. Do what you're told. Do not catch it. Do not give it to another person. 
listen to experts only. Yurt, I'll be back next week with some non-coronavirus related nonsense to keep you entertained and distracted. You got... Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Largest cunts. 